you know, there, there are some things in life that you pay a very high price for, and you really pay what they're worth. It, it's a worthwhile investment. And I'm not speaking about material things or things that we purchase uh, in this life for ourselves, but I'm thinking more about the price we pay to develop, in some cases, uh, a talent that might be within us. Um, the, the beautiful offertory that we just heard from Isaac, that kind of playing does not happen overnight. There have been years of commitment and practice, and, and you know, I'm, I'm sure there were times that Isaac would have liked to have been doing other things, but he would practice, and now, because he was willing to pay the price, he has earned a very, very wonderful capability and a talent that we're able to enjoy. Uh, sometimes folks in the realm of athletics, you'll find that the, the good players have natural ability, but they're not satisfied with just having natural ability. They will practice and practice and practice, and they will pay very high prices to become the best in their field, whether it's in baseball or basketball or football or volleyball or curling. Um, I said that for our Canadian folks. <laughs> and I look at that and I say, you know, the, the, the product that you get in return for all of the work is really worth it when you're able to be on the, the field or on the court or wherever you might be to, to show your capabilities. Um, truth of the matter is, it's hard work having a good marriage. It is a give-and-take proposition. It is a, a proposition that requires an understanding of God's Word. But every day, there is effort that has to be made because our natural inclinations are against that which is right. We are selfish by nature. And in order to be mutually submissive, and the Bible tells us that, it tells us that we are to submit to one another within the context of a marriage relationship. And then, of course, there's God's order of authority that we have to follow as well. But a good marriage is not just going to happen naturally. It takes work. And then, in the end, it's worth it. You look back after years of being together as a husband and a wife, and you say, you know, it did take effort, but what a tremendous reward has followed because of all that I've put into this. And so there are some things that come with a very, very high price tag, but in the end, they are very much worth it. We see that with the commitment that the Apostle Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke make in giving themselves over for the purpose of glorifying God and spreading the word of God. When we began looking last week at some of the events that were taking place in Paul's life in particular, think about what he paid in order to carry out the task that God assigned him to. There was a tremendous self-sacrifice on his part. He gave up safety. He gave up security. He gave up comfort. He gave up the fellowship that he would have with other believers. He gave up the family relationships that he had sustained. He gave up and gave up and gave up and paid and paid and paid. And then on top of that, 
There was the personal suffering that he went through. Last week we looked at how he came into the city of Philippi and how he was arrested uh, under false charges simply because he provided a means of escape to a gal whose life was dominated by a demonic spirit. And he releases her from that and she finds freedom. And now he's being accused by those who were making money off of her ability to tell the future. And they take him and they beat him and they beat Silas and they throw them in prison. It was not a pleasant experience. The cost was high. We know how the Lord worked on their, on their uh, behalf and how he saw to it that they were set free. And, and then because of the circumstances in the city, they had to leave. And they went on and then they went further. And we read this morning about how they went into Thessalonica. And in the city of Thessalonica, they begin to declare the truths concerning who Christ is. And notice, look down at verse 3 again there in Acts chapter 17. I want you to see how this is stated. It says, um, actually we'll begin in verse 2 just so we get the flow. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures. Well, this place in which he is reasoning now is in a synagogue. And you remember last week we said there had to be at least 10 Jewish men in a city before a synagogue could be established. There weren't that many in Philippi, so there was a place of prayer. The women went there to pray, and Paul went out, and that's where he began to share the gospel. Then it began to move into the city of Philippi. Here he has the the uh, the arena of a synagogue where he can begin telling those who had already been instructed in Old Testament understanding and belief that the one about whom they had studied, the one who had been promised in the centuries before, those promises were all fulfilled in the coming of the person of Jesus. And he showed them that Jesus is the Christ and that Jesus, as the Christ, took the penalty of their sin upon himself in his death on the cross. He paid the full price so that he could say, it is finished. We can add nothing to what he has done in order for our forgiveness and for our gift of eternal life. And then Christ was buried, having died, and he rose again from the dead and proved that he was alive by showing himself to hundreds of those who had believed. And they could testify to the reality of Christ's resurrection so there could be no question as to the veracity of everything that Paul was preaching. In these verses, we see this. Paul, as his custom was, went to them for three days Sabbath, Sabbath reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, saying, This Jesus, whom I preach to you, is the Christ. And the message that he gave concerning the person of Jesus Christ is the same message that we would declare today, that the one who had been promised in the book of Genesis, who had been promised by the the 
prophets who had been promised by those who wrote the books of poetry. All through the Old Testament scripture we see one is coming, one is coming, one is coming. And this one is going to be the Messiah for the Jew. He is going to be the Savior for the Gentile. And he comes in the person of Christ, fulfilling in every detail that which had been declared about him through these Old Testament writers. And then he paid the penalty of our sin. And the truth of that message was received by many in the city of Thessalonica. There were, there were people of both Jewish persuasion and people who were Gentiles who embraced what? Paul had taught them about the person of Jesus Christ. And you know what happened to those people? Their sins were forgiven. They had a righteous standing before a holy God. Not because of anything that they had done, but because of everything that Christ had done. And by trusting in Christ, the Father looked at them as if they had the same righteousness as His Son. We experience the same. We stand in absolute righteousness as holy as God Himself when we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior. And the Father looks at us and He sees us in His Son. And He looks at us and He calls us saints. It's all because of Christ. We get to heaven by virtue of our identification with Jesus. Not our own good works. Not our own efforts. Not our best intentions. Not our kindness to other people. Not even our religious desires satisfy the holy demands of a righteous God. They are only satisfied through the sacrifice of one who could pay the penalty for all of our sin and then give us His righteousness as we have extended to Him our sinfulness. And He paid the full price so that we're not condemned, but in Christ we have eternal life. We were talking in our Sunday school class about how when we share this message with people who don't know the Savior, their response is often, oh, you self-righteous hypocrites. You think you are so special because you're going to heaven. Well, here's really the truth. I'm going to heaven. But I'm not going to heaven because of my righteousness. I'm not going to heaven because I can do anything that will earn God's merit. I'm going to heaven because I have accepted by faith, which is the standard that God applies, and He says, if you will by faith accept that sacrifice of My Son and receive Him as your Savior, you will be forgiven and you will be granted the gift of eternal life based upon My grace and your faith. And that is it. And I stand before God as a terrible sinner who has to have somebody else's righteousness in order to make my way into His presence for all eternity. Who believes they're righteous? The lost. I can do it myself. I can do things that are good enough that God, when He weighs the balances, the the good will outweigh the bad. In spite of the fact that God says... 
all of your righteousnesses are as filthy rags and putrefying sores. On the righteous side of the scale is nothing. It is all on this side where the sin condemns and our failure of identification with the person of Jesus Christ means that we are separated from God for all eternity. You tell me who is self-righteous. I can't make my way to heaven apart from Jesus. He's the only way. And that's the message that the Apostle Paul carried into the city of Thessalonica. And many, many people believed. But then guess what happened? The people who didn't believe became very jealous because they saw what was happening. People were passing from spiritual death into life. And so they, they go to the house where Paul and Silas were supposedly staying and they find that they're not there. So they take the man of that house, Jason, and they take him out publicly to shame him and to put upon him, um, I guess you would call it a bribe. Um, not so much a bribe, uh, a, a, an assurance uh, financially that if Paul and Silas didn't leave the city, Jason would give up this money that he would have to give to the leaders of the city. Well, Paul understands the difficulty of that, and so he does leave the city so that Jason is not put in a position of losing his financial wealth. Paul then makes his way down to Athens and then Silas and Timothy come and they join him later. Paul did not have a very pleasant life. He was tortured. He was at times hungry. He was imprisoned. He was mocked. He was ridiculed. He paid a terribly high price. Do you think he thought it was worth it? Yeah, we know he did. Do you all understand that if we are to be the people that God wants us to be, it's going to cost. And it's going to cost a lot. I want you to listen to what the Apostle Paul said when he was talking to his followers and he described to them what it would cost. In the Gospel of Luke, we read this passage, Luke chapter 9. And you could actually begin reading down there at verse 18, but I'm going to drop all the way down to verse 23. And listen to this. Then he said to them, all. There is um, there's an important understanding of the concept of all. I think that it was an unlimited declaration that includes every one of Christ's followers. And we would claim to be his followers, wouldn't we? We're his followers. We have enjoyed the benefits of the death of Christ if we have appropriated them through faith. And we want to be his disciples. That's our, our goal. That's our objective. We want to be the followers of Christ that he wants us to be. All right, here we go. Then he said to them all, If 
anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Don't think for a moment that the Lord is trying to put a burden on our shoulders when he says, take up my cross. The cross was an instrument of death. You died on the cross. You didn't carry it around all day. You died. What's Jesus saying? You want to be my follower, something's going to have to be paid by you, and it's going to have to be very, very high. It's going to be costly. I want you to die to yourself every day. Your selfish ambitions, your selfish desires, your selfish goals. I want you to realize that there is a very, very high price to be paid if you're willing to follow me. I want to tell you something, folks. There are not many people in the United States of America who claim the name of Christ who are willing to pay this price. Not many at all. Everywhere you go, you find people who are very content to own Christ as Savior, but to ignore Him as Lord and to live lives that are very selfish and very self-focused. Lives that demonstrate more of an attachment to the world than an attachment to the Savior, focusing our attention on things above and not on things of the earth. You see, but pastor, if, if we're going to do that, that's, that's an awfully high price. It's the price of death. We die to ourselves. Do you know that the world is not going to see any difference between themselves and us if we live the way they do? If we have the same passions and same ambitions and same goals and same objectives? What's the difference? Christ tells us, you want to be my follower? You take up your cross every day and you follow me. You die daily to yourself and you live for me. Then the question is, will it be worth it? It may involve suffering. It may involve sacrificing dramatically. It may involve leaving. It may involve all sorts of very expensive issues. And the question is, are we willing to pay? If it were merely an issue of paying with the future hope of one day receiving that which God intends for those who are His faithful servants, that would be enough. That would be enough to look at and say, you know what, I'll do all this now because in glory the day is coming in which the Lord is going to give much more than what I deserve because of my willingness to sacrifice and to pay the high price for Him. But the truth of the matter is, He starts to give us the rewards right now. Do you think Paul was content and happy doing what he was doing? 
Everybody awake? What was he doing when he and and, uh, Silas were in prison? Singing and praying. Lord, we glorify your name. What songs did they sing? I don't know. I don't know what they were singing. Pardon me? My wife's trying to tell me what they were singing. (laughs) Contemporary choruses? (laughs) Traditional hymns? I don't know. Uh, Whatever they were singing, it was to the glory of God. Paul understood that God gives rewards right now. I want you to see, from today on, what God will give you if you are willing to die daily and to give Him absolute, complete control not only of your life, but of your desires, of the things you possess, the goals that you have, the relationships that you embrace. Listen to what he does. He rewards. And I I don't know any other way to put it than this. With personal delight. In order to understand Acts 17, do you know where we have to go? 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. So turn in your Bibles, and you can keep a finger there in Acts chapter 17 if you wish, but turn in your Bibles back to 1 Thessalonians, the first chapter. Because in this first chapter, what is happening is the Lord is recording through Paul the things that took place when he went to Thessalonica for the first time, as it's recorded for us in Acts 17. We know he went to Thessalonica. You go to 1 Thessalonians chapters 1 and 2, really, and you begin to understand what happened when he got there. And the first is, he is delighted with what's going on. He is giving the gospel, he is doing everything humanly possible to communicate that which Christ had done to these people in Thessalonica so that they would find personal faith in Christ and they would find forgiveness. But he understood something. He could not convince anyone to trust Christ. Nobody has an argument that is sufficient to break through the spiritual blindness that we possess as unregenerate, dead in trespasses and sins individuals. But he did his part, and then here comes this personal delight. He begins to recognize that God's power is now working through him. Can you imagine that God says, if you will take up your cross daily, you will follow me, I will empower the things that you do with a capability that transcends anything you're able to work up on yourself. It'll be my power. I want you to look down there at the first chapter, the fifth verse. For our gospel did not come to you in word only. That's my part but also in power and the Holy Spirit in which assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. What's he saying? He's telling us that when he faithfully communicated the gospel of Christ and did what God calls all his followers to do, 
which is to make an impact upon the world for the glory of Christ, he said, all of a sudden I realized it wasn't what I was saying. It wasn't just in words only. It was in power. The Word of God was empowered by His Holy Spirit. And now the Spirit of God tears away the blindness from people's eyes. And they begin to see the truth. And they put their trust in Christ. And they pass from death into life. You say, well, I'm not going to be an apostle traveling all over the world. Well, let me tell you something. You are a disciple wherever you live. You are a disciple wherever you work. You are a disciple wherever you go. And the Lord calls you and me to make an impact upon the world in which we live, no matter where we are. And when we do it for His glory... Under his direction, he gives power that we do not have within ourselves. Do you ever notice how people want power? You, you know what's happening in the Middle East right now. There's big conflict over who's in power. What, what's the issue? This person has the capability to make decisions and to lead and to have things happen. And the people are saying, no, we don't want these despots that have been on the throne for years and years and years. We want the freedom to make choices for ourselves. Now, whether or not those choices are going to be good choices or whether they are going to be very dangerous choices, I don't know. But I know this. People want power. People want influence. And quite frankly, as followers of Jesus Christ from the world standard, we don't have power. But when God is working in and through us, we have an infinite power that he freely gives. And Paul knew it. And he says, oh, I was a vessel that God used for his own glory. I'd call that personal delight. Wouldn't it be great to be God's instrument through which you see his power doing a work? Well, only certain people can have that. No, that is for every follower of Christ to have Divine power working in them and through them. And Paul makes it very clear. He understood it wasn't his capabilities, it wasn't his power, but it was God's power that was working through him. And then, the conclusion of it all is God used me. I was an instrument in God's hands that he not only gave power to, but he used me. And he used me in such a way that it makes a difference for all eternity. I have a question I'd like to ask. Actually, I have two questions. What could you look at in your life? And I'm not talking about a missionary. I'm not talking about a pastor. I'm talking about you. You personally. Don't think about anybody else except you. What have you done in your life that has any eternal value? Well, you accepted Christ, yeah, but that's the beginning. Leading souls to Christ. Well, I wasn't expecting an out loud answer, but that's a good one. Uh, one of the possibilities is you may have led people to Christ. I'm not going to ask you who of you have, because I don't want to embarrass anyone who would not be able to respond and say, you know, I never have. My question is, why not? Do you have a message that brings life? 
do you have a message that brings life? Is it too warm in here? No, don't. I'm not going down that road. Have you made an impact on your family that will have eternal value? Have you made an impact on your friends that will be of eternal value? Do you know what would be an awful thing to experience? Would be to come to the end of your life and to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, having accepted Christ as your Savior, and being empty-handed. Everything I did, I left behind. I worked so hard to amass those things that have burned. I worked so hard to satisfy the pleasures that now seem as though they were nothing. Instead of living my life for the glory of Christ. The first question I have is, what have you done that's of eternal value? What have you placed already in glory for which the Lord will reward you? He says we're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and everyone's going to receive for the works. All believers are going to receive for the things that they've done in the flesh, whether good or worthless. And the wood, hay, and stubble is a mountain. And the gold, silver, and precious stones. I don't see much. And then the fire burns up that wood, hay, and stubble. And what's left? Just a little bit. Folks, I'm not trying to be dramatic. I'm trying to be honest with you. This is the way it's going to be because this is what God said, the way things are going to happen. And we're either going to stand there with things that we've done for eternity or we're coming empty-handed. My second question is this. What will you do that will count for eternity? We can't undo the past. And so there's no sense living in the past and lamenting the past. My question now is, what are you going to do today? What are you going to do tomorrow? What are you going to do the next day that is going to have eternal value? Anything you can think of? Any love of Christ that you can demonstrate where unlovely people are involved? Any... uh, And and by the way, I don't want you to think it is just sharing the gospel. That's part of it. But there's much more. The love of Christ is what we must share. We, We find out that there is another reward that comes. And that reward that comes to us is seeing lives changed. And when we see lives changed... We begin to understand that God's power has been at work. I want you to take a look, if you will, please, there in chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians and look at the first four verses. For you yourself... Oh, pardon me, I'm sorry. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. For from you... The word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. Uh Uh-oh. 
something happened to these people in Thessalonica that's causing them to get a reputation. And the reputation is going out into all the regions around them. And here's what happened. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Here were these people whose lives are now transformed. They they turned. They turned from darkness to light. Do you know what was happening here? Think about this. People who were murderers, who took other people's lives, are now able to proclaim a message that gives life. Is that not cool? Guys who were drunks now are telling people they can be filled with the Holy Spirit. Is that not cool? You're already running out of gas. That is, I, okay, maybe the words cool don't seem appropriate. It's all I know what to say. Isn't that neat? Isn't that amazing? Spectacular. People who were thieves are now giving a message that gives life. Lives were changed. You turned from darkness to light. You turned from the power of Satan to the power of God. And your lives have been changed. And look, your lives now are filled with joy. Do you know one of the things that separates believers from unbelievers? We have a genuine, continuous resource of joy that does not depend upon circumstances. You can lose loved ones. And grieve, but not as those who have no hope. You can grieve with a settled joy that God makes no mistakes and that if that person was a believer, you will see them again in glory. And I'm going to tell you something else that may not sit well with you. But if that loved one was not a believer, somehow God is going to bring glory to Himself through that individual. And we must stop thinking about the horrible loss of that individual and focus more on the glory of God. Once they're gone, they're gone. We do everything we can before they go. But once they're gone, even in the loss of an unsaved loved one, I can still have joy knowing that the ultimate goal is not the eternal destiny of that individual, but the glory of God. You haven't been taught to think that way, have you? You haven't been taught to think that way. And that's why we get messed up in our thinking. And we start blaming God for things we can't explain. When what we don't get is that God's highest goal is not winning the lost. His highest goal is bringing glory to himself. And one of the ways we can help do that is to help win the lost. I'm looking at some of your faces and it looks like you've lost your joy. You're probably thinking about that statement right now, aren't you? Give it some more thought. But give it thought in the light of Scripture. 
and you will always find that everything comes back to the glory of God, the glory of God. His purpose is to bring glory to himself. And he is not selfish. He is God. And he deserves all the glory, however he brings it to himself. Just a little something to chew on. Okay, so chew away. Look at verse 6. You became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. One of the things that demonstrates our regeneration, our new life in Christ, is that in spite of the things that come our way, we still have hearts that are filled with joy. Joy unspeakable and full of glory. The hope that comes with transformed lives. Look at what it says in verse 10 of chapter 1. And to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. I am living today with this hope that I never finish this sermon. Did I hear an amen over there? And then some of you are worried, I will never finish this sermon. (laughs) I wish the Lord would come today, right now, and we would be in glory with Him. So, if I am carrying my cross today, and I die to myself, and I say, Lord, this day is yours, and tomorrow, I say, tomorrow is yours, or I say, tomorrow, this day is yours, and I say, the next day, this day is yours, and I stand there before Him with the anticipation that He's going to come. Do you think I'm ever going to die to self one day when He does come to take me to be with Himself and say, ah, nuts, I wish I had spent more time playing the things I like to play. Ah, oh, man alive, I wish I had just earned a little bit more so I could have gotten this special thing that I really wanted. See, I have to be careful because if I say anything of a material nature, some of you probably have it and you're going to think I'm picking on you. Maybe, maybe we need to reconsider our focus on the American dream. Maybe it would be better to have a heavenly dream, wouldn't it? Yeah. The final reward. It's a reward of pleasing our Savior. How many of you did well at Valentine's Day? Uh, you know what, this is neat, I'm seeing hands, but it's one of those things where uh, nobody wants to be the one who kind of lets other people know, I have seen three hands go like this. (laughs) Two from men and one from my wife. When you hit a day like Valentine's Day, you can take one of two courses of thought. The course of thought that invades my thinking initially is, I hate Hallmark. I have no idea why these people have created this holiday that puts so much pressure on you 
and you're trying to do everything the right way, and no matter how hard you might try, it often doesn't come out right. Or you can say, this is a day that in a very special way, I can make the person I love understand how much I do love them and appreciate them. And I do it freely. And it doesn't just have to be Valentine's Day, does it? No. Isn't there, isn't there a reward in giving to a person that you love something that causes them to say, he loves me. She loves me. Oh, and when they feel that way, isn't it like, yeah, I'm really glad that, that you're pleased. I'm really glad you're pleased. What better reward? My Savior. I'm glad you're pleased. I'm glad you're happy with me. And my efforts are so weak and they are so imperfect. But I know this. When my son or my daughter came home with some horrible drawing, the colors, they're all wrong. What is this thing you labeled dad? (laughs) And I take that and I hang it on the refrigerator. And I say, hey, do you see what my son did? You see what my daughter did? I am really pleased with that. Do you think that makes them happy? Let me ask you a question. Do you think when we do that which pleases the Lord, he says, hey, the colors are wrong. The, uh, the picture is really not a picture of me and my perfection. But boy, I'll tell you something. You've made me very happy. I love what you've done. I am really, really pleased. Isn't that what we want? I am rewarded when in my heart I know that what I've done has pleased the Lord. And there's so many times I don't. And then he looks at me and he says, my son, that's my love and my grace and my mercy that will take care of that. I think the Apostle Paul understood. He made the Father happy. He pleased the Father. Look how he ended that second chapter with these Thessalonians. He said, verse 19, For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing, 
Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? In other words, it's not just you. It's you in his presence when he comes. The fact that my life made an impact upon you is a wonderful treat. It is a reward because you are my joy. You are my crown. You are my hope. Look at what he says in the final verse. For you are our joy, our glory, and joy. It's what we do to show others what Christ has done for us. Does that make sense? And then the Lord is pleased. Then he's pleased. You're going to pay a high price if you want to serve Christ. You're not going to be able to please him without some sacrifice. You're not going to be able to please him without paying a high price. But let me ask you a question. In the final wash, do you think it'll be worth it? Do you think it'll be worth it? Do you think it'll be worth it? See, I know something about you guys. You're being honest. You're being very honest. Because it is very difficult to respond verbally without understanding that this means you've got to do something about it. It's tough to say yes and not have any intention of changing, of living a life that now brings glory to the Savior. So I will take whatever answer you give so long as you allow the Spirit of God to work in your heart in such a way that He causes you to be willing to pay the highest price imaginable for the praise of His glory, understanding that every penny we pay, if I can put it in those terms, will have a tremendous, tremendous reward. Stand. Father, it is truly a privilege to be challenged by your word. Lord, if you did not care about us, you would not care about how we live. But you love us deeply, and so you care about everything we do, just as a loving parent cares about the behavior of of his or her child. You care about ours. We want our kids to go the right way. We want them to make the right decisions. We, we frankly, Lord, want them to um, make us proud. We want them to show virtues in their lives that would demonstrate that within our home, those virtues are alive and well. Father, how can we for any moment think that you desire less from every one of us who is your child? Challenge us today and empower us to accomplish your will. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless.